0: Thank you for being here. I, I trust that your time here tonight will be profitable. I have to admit that uh, seeing Joel do his series on the 10 words, uh, aka the 10 commandments, he jumped into a bit of a series. I, I got a little jealous. I, I, I thought about maybe, and, he, and Joel was very gracious, he said, well, if you want to you know, take one of the 10 commandments when it's your turn, you can just run with that. I said, Joel, brother, that's your thing. I, I don't want to take that away from you. I think I'll try to find my own, my own little series. And so I've uh, been praying about this series for a while. Um, but the Lord has laid the book of Hebrews upon my heart for a very long time. I think ever since I got saved, uh, which was about, about ten years ago now, um, I, I've just been really interested in the book of Hebrews. I've loved reading it. I've loved talking about it. The Lord has, I can't say it any other way, he's just, he's laid it upon my heart. Uh, I don't come from a Jewish background, uh, and yet it still speaks to me. And so uh, I'm I'm very excited to begin a series in the book of Hebrews. Judging by the frequency with which I get to preach in the pulpit Sunday morning or Sunday evening, um, it looks like I'll be in this book for the next 10 or 12 years or so. (laughs) Perhaps even longer. Uh, However, Lord willing, we're actually going to... Uh, we're actually going to get through, Lord willing, the whole first chapter tonight. And that sounds a little ambitious. I'm, I'm kind of kind of messing up my timeline. It may only take, take me 10 years now. Uh, but we are going to attempt to look at the entire first chapter of the book of Hebrews tonight. And I say that with great trepidation. Two things have been said about the book of Hebrews, two of which stood out to me the last few weeks as I was preparing for this. The first is that, and this almost scared me away from this study, but not quite. It said that the book of Hebrews is not for the theologically faint of heart. Well, I'm a little bit theologically faint of heart, and yet I I still want to to dive into this book. I want to be courageous. I want to take my time. I want to enjoy the study. And the second thing is, it's been said many times that you cannot understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand the book of Leviticus. And so I spent a lot of time in the book of Leviticus just reading and absorbing and listening to it as I'm working. I had the chance to listen to the Bible um, while I'm working. And that's probably one of the greatest joys I have in my life right now. I get to, to cut concrete and, and blow things up with various tools. And I get to have my headphones on and listen to whatever I want. So Leviticus has been in my headphones the last two weeks or so. But that is so true. You cannot understand the book of Hebrews unless you have a good grasp of The book of Leviticus, they're they're so inextricably intertwined. So tonight will be a little bit of background information about the book of Hebrews and then really just working through relatively quickly, I would say, the first chapter. The first chapter really does not have any really complex theological issues. It really doesn't have any um, really confusing turns. Uh, It's really quite straightforward. In fact, it's really meant as a thesis statement for the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, especially the first three verses. The first three verses of the book of Hebrews really sets the tone for the whole book and serves as the thesis statement for the entire book. And that theme, of course, for those of you who are familiar with this book, and maybe you're not as familiar with it, is that the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is supreme. Christ is superior. Christ is preeminent. The entire book covers and focuses on exclusively the superiority or the preeminence of Christ. That's what the whole book is about. And the entire book actually covers many different aspects of Christianity and of history and various notable people like Moses and Joshua. And, and the author of Hebrews continually says, Christ is superior. Christ is superior in verses 1, uh, one 2, and 3. Christ is superior to everyone and everything. In verses 4 through 14, Christ is superior to the angels. We'll be talking about that tonight. And then he also talks, as we go through the book, Christ is superior to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron and his priesthood, to the old covenant, of course. And it also talks about the, superior, the superiority. So I've got to make sure I get that word right. The superiority of Christ's sacrifice to the old sacrifices of Christ's faithful people as over against... All the faithless people. And of course the superiority of Christ's testimony. As over against that of any other testimony. And so just chapter by chapter. Verse by verse. The author of Hebrews continually. Just hammers home this point. Christ is supreme. Christ is superior. Over anyone. Anything. Any person that has come before. The old covenant. Every single thing. Christ is supreme. That's the, the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. And of course, tonight we'll be talking about this supremacy of Christ. This thesis statement, if you will, of the entire book of Hebrews. Now, a couple of notes on authorship, audience, and the rough date of, of, of having been written. Um, I, I have some good news and I have some bad news about the authorship. The bad news is I have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. The good news is no one else does either. And the other piece of good news is that God knows. God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews, and here's what was encouraging to me, and of course there's, there's hypotheses, oh, maybe he was Barnabas, maybe he was Luke, maybe he was Paul, maybe he was uh, Apollos, maybe he was a guy we've never even heard of, he was just a faithful pastor in the church, none of those are really quite convincing, and of course it, it doesn't actually mention who the author is, it, it doesn't say and this is God's inspired word. It's infallible. It's inspired. It's, it's unable to be uh, full of any sort of error. There's a reason why the author wasn't mentioned. I don't know what that reason was. I sure would like to know, but it was decided long ago that we would not know. And what's encouraging, beloved, is that doesn't take away at all from the message of the book. Not at all. It doesn't matter really who wrote the book. What matters is that God wrote this book. He wrote it for the Hebrews. So that's the first note about the author. We don't know who it was. We'll find out someday. One of the many questions that I'll have <laughs> for, uh, for heaven. The audience, of course, as you probably figured out from the title of this book, is called The Letter to the Hebrews. And you, I'm sure you've heard Pastor Chris's uh, coffee joke about this. Uh, Pastor Chris is convinced that coffee was in the Bible because of Hebrews. <sighs> Just... Just take it. Just take it for what it is. Um, The audience. Of course, the book is called The Letter to the Hebrews. This is intended for Hebrew people, but not Hebrew people of the Old Testament. This is a New Testament book. Um, And of course, the audience here is almost completely Jewish. There's almost no mention of Gentiles. There's almost no mention of, of problems between Jews and Gentiles. So the audience here is predominantly Jewish. The author wrote to a Jewish audience. Now, within that Hebrew and Jewish background audience, there are also three subgroups, if you will, three types of of Jewish people within that major category, and those three are the following. The first category, the first group would be Hebrew Christians, people who were of Jewish background who had come to faith in Christ. That's, that's, That's the first group. Obviously, the author is writing to Jewish background believing Christians. The second group are Hebrew non-Christians, so Jewish background, non-Christians. They haven't believed yet, and yet they are intellectually convinced. You probably heard Pastor Jeff this morning talking about how it's possible to, to know everything in your head and yet not believe it in your heart, right? It's very, very common, and it was very common in this age as it is in our age. So the second group are Hebrew uh, non-Christians who are intellectually convinced of the truth of the gospel and yet they still haven't believed either. And the third group would be unconvinced non-Christians, unconvinced non-believing Hebrew people. So those three groups, those who have believed, those who are Jewish background intellectually convinced, and those who are Jewish background unconvinced and they're not saved. So it's really important to grasp that those three groups of people are represented in this audience. Because sometimes it's clear the author is talking to Hebrew Christians. Sometimes he's talking to people uh, in, in a way that is rebuking them. Be careful of not believing. Be careful lest you be sent into hell. Very, very, very strong warnings. And of course that third group, those unconvinced non-Christians, it's evangelistic. So there's there's encouragement, there's warning, and there's also Evangelism. So it is critical, critical to understand that we're not just talking about one church. We're not just talking about one congregation. This was a letter to Hebrew and, and Jewish background people of those three different categories. In terms of the, the approximate date of having been written, it, it seems like it was written, of course, before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and certainly a long time after Jesus had gone into heaven I would put the date somewhere around A.D. 65. That's maybe a rough approximation. Close to the destruction of the temple in 70, but also uh, a lot of time has passed. 25, 30 years have passed uh, since the, uh, the ascension of Christ. That's just a, an approximation. Uh, I'm not going to die on that hill, but that's, that's what it seems like based on, uh, based on my study. So the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ... The author of Hebrews asks these three crucial questions. And these are really three questions we should be asking ourselves. I have really appreciated what Pastor Lance, many months ago, he was having a, a, really, a really amazing moment of clarity. Uh, he has lots of moments of clarity, but this one was particularly piercing to me when he said, Boy, it really comes down to who is Jesus and who is he to you? It, it, it really boils down to that. That is exactly what the author of Hebrews is asking us. Three crucial questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Number two, what has he done? And number three, what is the significance for us? Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what is the significance of what he has done for us? What does it mean? How does it impact me? Does it change anything about the way I should live my life? Or shall I just proceed on as though nothing has happened and be intellectually convinced and be convinced in my mind but not changed in my heart? That's what the author of Hebrews is aiming to do here. So let's dive in. Let's dive into Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 14. I won't make any comments, I promise. just want to read it. And we'll begin to work through it. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What an interesting opening chapter to a book of the Bible. Folks, this is by far my favorite beginning to any book of the Bible. It is incredibly eloquent incredibly clear and also incredibly simple. I love the way that this book starts. In fact this book, if you hopefully noticed, this book is actually sharing the gospel with us in the first three verses. This is exactly the way the gospel should be shared. Notice verse 1. It says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Stop right there. We know that from Old Testament history, God sent numerous prophets, numerous messengers to his people to to spread the news, to, to share the truth, to bring word of doom, also word of encouragement. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these different prophets were sent by God, inspired by God. Their message was not their own. Their message was from God to his people. The author of Hebrews is simply reviewing what these people already know. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Notice he says, our fathers. The author was clearly of Jewish background. He knows what he's talking about. He knows his Old Testament. Our fathers by the prophets. We also know, as Jesus himself said... And as, as, as Peter did as well, that, that these people, that, that the fathers of this generation to whom the author is speaking, those fathers also killed those prophets, didn't they? They not only killed those prophets, they also killed the prophet, Jesus Christ. And yet, notice the most important word in that sentence. God spoke. God spoke. That's an incredibly important statement. Because God had not spoken for a very long time. And all of a sudden, for example, in the Ten Commandments, God did speak. He spoke verbally. He spoke out loud. He spoke in an inspiration sort of a way. He spoke to, to the fathers of this author and to the fathers of his audience by the prophets. And yet, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. It's, it's amazing for two reasons. Number one, the fact that God spoke previously because he did. What's even more amazing, it's, it's incredibly amazing that God did speak through the prophets. And yet, verse 2, comma, but in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his son. The final prophet, the last prophet, the Son of God himself, came to the earth to speak to his people about the most important things they could ever hear about it: whom he appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things. I want to, to sort of work through some really important moments here, some important aspects of Christ. Look at verse two, look at verse two, look at Christ uh, his heirship, the fact that he is an heir. He's been appointed the heir of all things. You may recall, I I preached from Revelation chapter 5 just a number of weeks ago, the beginning of August. And in Revelation 5, we're looking at the the seven seals are about to be opened. And and we're looking for someone who's worthy to open the seals. And we can't find anyone. And John is weeping. And then the, the man next to him says, don't weep because the lamb, the lamb has conquered. He is worthy to open these seals. What was that scroll? That scroll was Christ's sovereignly ordained and sovereignly given inheritance. It was the, the, the bond. It was the, the document by which Christ would re-inherit the earth, not through wonderful things, but rather through judgment and blood and fire. Christ is the heir of all things. He is the son. He is God's heir. The earth and everything in it is his, and he is going to inherit it, whether people want him to or not. And so there's his heirship. Also look at his creatorship. Continuing on through verse 2. He's the heir of all things, through whom also, and let's pause. So God, through Jesus, he also created the world. He created the cosmos. So God is the action. He's using the his instrument, Jesus, his own son... Spoken word, his own son, is creating the world. He will inherit it through whom he also created the world. He is the creator. Continue on to verse 3 now. Look at Christ's radiance. It says in verse 3, "He." This is just an incredible pedigree, an incredible curriculum vitae, if you will. The author of Hebrews is is taking a moment at the very beginning of this book to say, Hey, just in case you forgot the basic tenets of the gospel, in case you forgot who the real author of this book is, in case you forgot what it's all about, let me remind you of Christ's pedigree, his his, his worthiness, his curriculum vitae, his resume, so to speak, right? He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance. Numerous times it's mentioned, we don't have time for all of it, but uh, it's, it's mentioned that uh, for example, in Revelation chapter 1, it says that the face of Christ, the face of the Son of Man, was shining like the sun. And as I was joking around with my youth group this morning, not just the sun at dusk when the sun is setting and it's really orange and warm and you can look at it and it's, it's very uh, very um, accessible. It says that the, that the face of the Son of Man, that's Christ, was like the sun shining in full strength high noon sun. You can't look at it. You shouldn't look at it. It's too bright to even comprehend. Too bright to even fathom. His face has been has been numerously mentioned as being radiant. And yet it says that He, Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is that radiance of the glory of God. And also it says, talking about Christ's being, He's also the exact imprint of His nature. What does that mean? The exact imprint of of his nature. This means that Jesus Christ himself is not, is not like a son, not like my son who looks a lot like me but only has half of my DNA, right? You can look at my son and say, that's Shane's son, right? Same nose, it's just obviously Shane's, right? Well, Christ is not just, he doesn't have just half of his father's DNA. He's not just resembling his father. He doesn't just, people don't just say, oh, he, he, he looks like his dad, yeah. Christ is the exact imprint of his, of his nature. That is, his father's nature. He's not just a, a, a son in the sense that, that we have sons and daughters, but he is perfectly co-equal with God. He is the second member of the Trinity. This type, of, this, this type of stuff just, just going me be fired up. I'm just fired up about talking about who Christ is and, and, and what he's done and where he's come from and, and what he's about to do. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And then get this. He upholds the universe. This is his upholding power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We were driving here tonight and Lauren and I were just, just reflecting on it. One of our daughters asked, does the earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the earth? And we said, well, the, the earth revolves around the sun. That's, that's the way it works. And, she, and, and our, our younger daughter very perceptively said, well, that's strange because it looks like the sun is moving, right? Hey, she's very smart. She's very, very smart. She's far beyond where I was at her age. And we began to think about the, the cosmos and, and, the, and the heavens and the sun and the earth and, and all these dynamics. And we were just struck just for 30 seconds about how God has made the earth perfectly. And he has, he has put everything in place. And it's all just, it's not just the Goldilocks zone where they say, oh, if the earth was a little bit over here, it would be too cold. Over here, it would be too hot. It's not just that. But Christ himself actually upholds the universe personally by the word of his power. I was sitting in an organic chemistry class at the University of Florida in the fall of 2011 trying to become a doctor, failing miserably. And the professor said, you know, blah, 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 you know, protons and neutrons and electrons. And he said, you know, and this is where my ears kind of perked up because I said, ooh, something he doesn't know. Ooh, was this? And he said, you know, the, the one thing we still can't figure out is that, uh, you know, positively charged protons – and neutral neutrons are in the middle of each atom, and we get how you know negatively charged electrons are flying around. We get negative and positive, but what we don't know is how the positive, uh, um, I'm blanking, the positively charged protons and neutrons how they stick together. That doesn't make any sense. In nowhere else, in the laboratory, on uh, nowhere else do positively charged Particles stick together. They, by nature, fall apart. They, 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 they want to get away from each other, not to mention all the neutrons. We don't get it, we don't understand it, but we'll just, just move on. i was sitting there, and I said to myself, I know why they stick together. Because in Colossians one seventeen, excuse me, in John 4.25, excuse me, um, no, I messed that up too. <laughs> it says that Jesus himself holds all things together. And I, I really wanted to say that But in a class of 300 students, I didn't think it would be appropriate. Plus, they'd probably laugh me out of the the lecture hall. But I'm sitting there thinking, this is the one thing that all the best minds in all of creation can't figure out. And it's right here in God's word. Jesus himself upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. Without that word of his power, our universe unravels. Our universe falls apart. I mean, not to mention the breath in our lungs and the stars and the heavens and the plants and the animals and the trees. Uh, but but everything would just disintegrate into nothingness. Christ himself holds all things together. That's his upholding power. And now look at Christ's sacrifice. Look at his sacrifice now. It says in the latter part of verse 3, after making purification for sins, a very important word for the book of Hebrews, talking about the Old Testament Levitical law and the sacrifices, after making purification for sins, which we know he accomplished on the cross, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Pastor John MacArthur very uh, astutely and very helpfully notes that there are, are really four things that Christ's sitting down signifies. And I didn't really understand a lot of these until fairly recently. I thought, oh, His job is done. He's just going to sit down now. It's much, much more than that. The fact that Christ sat down after he made purification for sins signifies these four things. Number one, it signifies honor. There's honor in Christ's right to sit down. He hadn't sat down before. He finished his work. It is finished, he said, on the cross. He sat down. It signifies honor. Number two, it also signifies authority. The fact that he can sit down at the right hand of God. Of course, he's co-equal with God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He is, he is the God-man, fully God, fully man, having been sent to the earth to provide uh, uh, substitutionary atonement for us. But he's also an authority. He sits down because he has authority. The third reason is that it signifies Rest. Signifies rest. Once his work is done, he sits down It signifies rest. I didn't think about that. In the same way that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and then on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. His work was done at that time. Signifies rest. And the fourth thing, of course, is that he intercedes for us. He sits down at the right hand of the Father, and he also intercedes for us to the Father. He takes our requests, our burdens our heartaches, our, our, our griefs, and it intercedes for us to the Father. I think that's amazing that there's honor, authority, rest, and also intercession for us. And so, beloved, in these first three verses, we see some, some really incredible doctrines. Some really incredible, theologically incredibly amazing doctrines. And those doctrines are as follows. Revelation, God has spoken creation god has created the trinity it mentions it mentions christ as being coequal with the father it also correlates and really intertwines the old testament and the new testament together because god has spoken and now he has spoken in these last days through his son who has made purification he has sat down his work is finished incredibly interlocking the old testament and new testament i think lest this congregation think that they don't need the old testament anymore Right, even for us, I I think it's a it's a huge detriment to the church when we ignore the Old Testament, folks. Our Bible begins in the book of Genesis, and it ends in Revelation. We should be reading the entire Bible. We should be studying the entire Bible. Right. In fact, this is uh, everyone I'm sure knows this, but if you simply look at how much of the Old Testament covers the Bible, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. The Old Testament is easily three times the size of the New Testament. And yet, how little time we spend in the Old Testament. Of course, we have to be reading it carefully. We have to be reading it in context. We have to be reading it with with gospel lenses, with, with lenses that understand that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament talks about. And yet, what an incredible story. We know the end, we know how the story ends. Why wouldn't we want to keep on going back to the beginning? How did we start? Where did we come from? How did God make this earth? What went wrong? What lessons can I learn from God's people? And all all these books of the the, the Old Testament. And then a look at at the hope that we can have, of course, in the New Testament. And so, to summarize the first three verses of Hebrews, chapter 1, we can see that Christ is the following. Christ is, he's the son of God. He's also the revelation of God. He's also the fulfillment of God. Of God's revelation in the Old Testament. He's also the heir of all things. He's the agent of all creation. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the expression of God's nature. He's the preserver of all creation, the purifier of God's people, and of course the mediator for God's people. He mediates on our behalf to the Father. And and Hebrews gets into that, talking about Jesus being our great high priest. We have no need for having a high priest anymore. Jesus is our great high priest. And so that's really the, the the first half of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. Christ is superior, he is far superior above all things. He has spoken and he has spoken by his Son to us in these last days. And by the way, when it says these last days, it's talking about the days of fulfillment. The days of fulfillment in these last days, many things had been fulfilled by this time, by the time this letter was written. And yet many more things have yet to be fulfilled with things like the second coming of Christ, which is a really remarkable fact that this, this book even gets into eschatology. Even this very first chapter touches on some eschatology. Uh, I've really enjoyed, by the way, doing Revelation with, uh, with our students. It's really brought uh, together uh, a lot of eschatology for me, areas that I was unclear on and areas that I needed to work on. Uh, as I mentioned even a few months ago, uh, a lot of our students, when I would ask for questions about what I was teaching about, they would typically not have any questions about what I was teaching about, but rather questions about the end of the world. And so I said, you know what? We're already spending a lot of time on Revelation. Let's just go ahead and start studying it together. We've had a blast, and now looking at the end of the story, as I just mentioned, we're probably going to have to go to Genesis next. That seems like the logical, the logical next step because now all their questions are about creation. And I'm saying, guys, I, I'm I'm only halfway through Revelation. Okay, slow down a little bit, slow down. Let's let's you know, and, and then we'll kind of go back over to Genesis. So um, I'm just having an absolute blast with our students in student ministry. I'm I'm definitely learning more than they are, which is a little, little frightening. But um, I'm I'm just going to keep working at it. So, uh, so these first three verses are just jam-packed with an amazing review of Christology, things that the church, that the readers, that the audience of this letter should already know, and the author is merely reminding them of this fact. And now, in verse four, he changes gears to: by the way, Christ is not just superior to all things; Christ is also superior to the angels, to the angels it 's interesting that the author starts with the angels. Why would he start with the angels did uh, did, the, did the audience in question did they have a, a particular fascination with angels? Was there a problem perhaps with uh, with people maybe uh, holding angels to a higher level than they were supposed to? The answer is yes. there were a lot of really interesting. Uh, primarily, uh, of course, false views coming from from uh, ancient Judaism that were seeping into the church, and there was even some confusion about who angels were, what their roles were, what they were and were not able to do, their origins, their purpose. And so the author here is is making very clear, without actually going into the details of, of where angels came from and, and how many there are and what their specific purposes are, he doesn't go into any of those details. He simply says... Christ is superior to the angels. I think the author starts here because short of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the next highest, if you will, spiritual beings that that we're aware of would be the angels. And I think that the author of Hebrews is simply trying to uh, sort of cut us off at the past and say, ah, 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 before you say, what about the angels? Let me just make clear to you that Christ is superior to the angels he jumps right in, in verse 4. In fact, it's even a, a, a continuation from his last sentence. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that's God, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The question is, what is that name? What is the name we're talking about? It's a name that he has inherited. He's superior to the angels. He has inherited this name, and this name is more excellent than their name. What could this name be? I think that this name, in the context of this this book, in the context of Christ hasn't returned yet, when he does return, he'll be given another name. He has many names, of course, but those names are future names. The name that I believe that is more excellent than the names of the angels would be the name Son, Why? Because it mentions the the word son over and over and over. Comparing angels to the son. Angels to the son. The son has this. The angels have this. He has a more excellent name than theirs because his name is the name son. S-O-N. He is the son of God. The angels are not sons of God. Although they are created beings. Jesus is not created. The angels were. They're creatures. Maybe, of course, some of the first created... But, but they're not on equal plane with Christ. So I think that that name is the name Son. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say... And by the way, since I love parallelisms and I love bookends and structure. Notice how verse 5 and verse 13 almost say the exact same thing. For to which of the angels did God ever say... dot, dot, dot And look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said... It sort of bookends, sort of encompassing this this next argument he has about proving Christ's superiority to the angels. And so, first of all, Christ is superior to the angels because of his title. Because of his title. And the author now gives numerous Old Testament quotations proving his point. He's a very logical guy, this guy. I really like the author of Hebrews. I don't know who he is, but I like him. It's very logical, very rational, step by step. Here's my argument. Here's the Old Testament cross-reference, which you can easily turn to. And bada bing, bada boom. Here it is. So he's superior because of his title. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, this is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And by the way, you might notice, if you're like me, a student of the word, you may notice that when you turn back to these passages that we're about to mention They don't always perfectly match up with what we find in the Old Testament. Does that mean that God's word has changed? (gasps) No, it doesn't. Why would they be different? Why would they be different in the book of Hebrews than what we find in the Old Testament? I'll tell you why. It's because the author of Hebrews is quoting these verses from the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint, you may ask? Well, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Hebrew, before this time, was a language that not as many people used. People were using Greek more. And so it made sense to translate the Old Testament from the original Hebrew into Greek. And so there are a couple of changes, some, some grammar changes, some, some even some punctuation changes, even some, some wording changes. And yet the meaning is the same. The meaning is the same. It's merely, they're just using a different translation. Just like if, if I were preaching from the ESV and I took a quick cross-reference from the NASB for a moment, which, by the way, I've done that. It's a really bad idea. Don't change versions in the middle of your sermon. It just throws everybody off, including the preacher. Um, if you had more questions about what I did, let me know. I'll, I'll answer your questions. It's, it's a, very, uh, a very humbling and a very wonderful experience. Um, But he's simply quoting from the Septuagint. That's it. So Psalm 2-7, he quotes here in verse 5. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When when Jewish readers would have read this in the same way that the Jewish people, when encountered by Jesus, when Jesus was telling them about his father, that my father in heaven and, and I am his son and he is my father, that wasn't understood in the same way that we understand it. For example, if I say that I am my father's son, they say, oh, okay, so, so Mr. Kelly had a son. His name is Shane Kelly, and he is his son. Okay, so generation, got it. Well, well, when, when, when you mention the fact that you are the son of God, it doesn't just carry the sonship aspect, although that is absolutely true. It carries something much more weighty, and that is equality. I am not equal to my father. I'm a different man. I'm just not the same as him. I'm not equal to him. I'm, I'm my own person, right? Not so with Jesus. Jesus is, is not just God the Father's son. He is also God himself. And so when Jesus would say, my father in heaven, or what you have said is true, or before Abraham was, I am, they're saying he is saying that he is equal with God. By, by, by claiming to be the Son of God, he's saying that he is God. And that's why they got so up in arms with Jesus. So he's superior because he is the Son of God. This is equality with God. Equality with God. He is superior because of his title. Number two in verse... Um, Excuse me, I almost missed the second part there. It says, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Just, just clarifying from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, the same idea. So Psalm 2.7 and Second Samuel 7.14, both of them proving Christ's superiority because of his title. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son And now in verse 6, we see that he is superior because of who he is worshipped by. Who he is worshipped by. In verse 6, in my Bible it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. I think a better translation is, When he again brings, or when he brings again the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Why is that important. Why is it important with that word again, it's a pesty little word, but but it's really important. Why does it matter? Why does it matter where the word again is? Because well in, in my Bible, when it says and again, comma, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that sounds like he's simply restating what he said before. He brought the firstborn into the world. And again when he brought the firstborn into the world, it sounds like he's sort of repeating himself. That's what it, I get from my English translation. But that's not what the Greek is saying here. The Greek is not saying, he's not, the, the author here is not restating himself. He's not, um, he's not repeating himself. He's actually saying, and when he brings the firstborn into the world again. We're not talking about the first coming of Jesus. We're talking about his second coming. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, in, 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 verse, in, verses five, in verse 5, you are my son because today I have, I have begotten you. I'll, I'll be a father to you. You'll be a son. That's talking about the first advent of Christ. Born as a baby to Joseph and Mary, walking on the earth, dying, rising again, and ascending into heaven. But verse 6 really should be translated, when he brings the firstborn into the world again, meaning the second coming. And because of that, that's, that's how the, now of course, uh, the next part of verse 6, let all God's angels worship him, makes sense for both Advents, first and second, right? God's angels did worship him in the first Advent, and they will worship him in the second. We know this. But contextually, it really is talking about the second coming. See, he's going to bring the firstborn of all creation to the earth again. He has done it once, he will do it again. The first time was joyous and wonderful and redemption. The second time brings swift and terrifying judgment. Swift and terrifying judgment. And so this is a quote from uh, Psalm 97.7, Let all God's angels worship him. And now look at verse 7. He's changing years now. He's been talking about the sun, and now he's talking about the angels. He's comparing and he's contrasting. He's he's going from, from one to the other. Christ is superior because of his title, because of, of who is he, he is worshipped by, and now, of course, he is superior because of his superior nature. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is Signifying the fact that these angels have been created, he makes them; he makes them winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They are created beings, but then, and of course, that's from Psalm one hundred four, verse four. But then, look at verse eight, going back to the sun. But of the sun, here's the angels. But of the sun, he says, and this is from Psalm forty five, verses six and seven. But of the sun, S O N. Again, this is this is the the most excellent name. The one that he has inherited that makes him far superior to the angels. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Christ is superior to the angels because he has a superior nature. And we don't have time to dive into every single uh, facet and every single uh, aspect of this. But just, just put your attention now to the fact that God has anointed his son. Look at, uh, just, just think back to when the woman anointed Christ before he died. What did she do? She, she was weeping. She was washing his feet. She was using a, a jar of perfume to anoint him, to prepare him even for burial. And his disciples were dismayed and confused and and just just absolutely just just confused about what was going on but but God anointed his son he has anointed him this is this is kingship this is sonship this is preparation for burial this is preparation for a task that God has given to his son his son has loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions Christ is different he is Separate, he is higher, he is superior, he is special, even among his companions, it says, comparing him to the angels. And now Christ is superior because of his superior existence, verse 10. It says this, this is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. It says this, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. This is, this is talking about Christ. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I think it's, it's so easy to get into this mindset that, that only God the Father made heavens and earth. But that's not true. All three persons of the Trinity were present. God the Father created the heavens and the earth through his Son, through spoken word, through his Son Jesus, who is the Word of God. That's just an amazing thought that, that, that all three persons, all equal persons of the Trinity, were, were there, they were present, and they were involved. They were part of the actual creation of the earth, the laying of the foundations. The heavens, it says, are the works of your hands. This is, again, Psalm 102, 25 through 27. In verse 11, it says, They will perish, that is, the heavens and the earth, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. In, in Revelation chapter 6, you can turn there if you like. Revelation chapter 6, we've been talking about this in student ministries. Talking about how Christ is going to bring about the end of the world. And it's pretty horrifying. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 this is, of course, during the, the sixth seal that Christ himself, the Lamb, the Worthy One, opens, unleashing absolute devastation upon the earth. And Revelation 6.14 talks about the sky vanishing like a scroll, which is a really interesting parallel to, uh, to verses 11 and 12 here in Hebrews 1. But it says this, uh, I'll actually start in verse 12 of, of Revelation 6. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, this is John, looking and beholding, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. I think those are meteors. Pretty scary idea, pretty scary image. Stars falling from the sky as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Definitely Definitely some meteors hit the earth. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Imagine the sky just being completely rolled up, just completely undone, unraveled, rolled up. It's gone. It's absolutely gone. That's going to happen. During the tribulation. The sky will be no more. And so it's just a really fascinating parallel. Between that. Revelation 6.14. And Hebrews 1.11 and 12. The earth and the heavens will perish. They will perish. They absolutely will. But you Lord Jesus remain. They will all. The earth. The heavens. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe. You will roll them up. I mean talk about a piece of cake. The son of man is going to roll up the heavens and the earth. Like a garment. Like you're folding laundry. Yikes. Like a garment, they will be changed. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Christ is superior because he has a superior existence. He always has been, he always will be. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, Christ is superior because he has a superior destiny. A superior destiny it says this in verse 13, again, a parallel to verse 5. And to which of the angels has he ever said? And it's sort of a, a rhetorical question. He, he's never said this to the angels. He's never said what he's about to say to the angels. And he says this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What an incredible, incredible statement from God the Father to his son. Hey, son, uh, well done. Sit at my right hand. Let's, let's wait until I can make your enemies a footstool. Make your enemies an ottoman for your feet. For you interior designers. I'm going to make your enemies into a footstool. So until that happens, hang out with me. Place of honor, place of authority, place of, um, of power and of intercession and rest. And until that time, let's, let's, let's wait for that time. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's from Psalm 110, verse 1. Um, Philippians 2, verse 10 has a little bit to say about this. Philippians 2, verse 10 says this. You can turn there if you'd like to. Philippians 2, verse 10 says this. Well, I'll start in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, this is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is a different name than the name Son. This is a different name. But it is a name that is above every name, verse 10, so that, so, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it's really interesting as, as one commentator pointed out that every knee is going to bow, is going to bow whether they want to or not. There are going to be those of us who want to bow and will gladly bow. I can't wait to bow. Christ is the king. He is coming. I cannot wait to get on my knees and worship him. And there will be others. Stiff-necked, and I would even say stiff need who will need a little bit of help bowing, and yet they will still bow. They will be made to bow. They will be made to bow even though they desire not to. And then if it says in verse 14, this is, uh, Christ's superiority because of his superior destiny. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? This is the angels. Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Are, are not all the angels that he has made ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There's a little, little bit of, uh, of predestination talk in there. Isn't there? For those who are to inherit salvation. Salvation, salvation is something that we're going to inherit. It's not something that we choose. This is true. We are to inherit it. We've been chosen. We've been chosen before the foundations of the world. And meanwhile, God sends his angels to us, to the earth, as ministering spirits sent out to serve for our sake. What an amazing thought. The angels, though not as superior as Christ, are still God's creatures God's messengers, God's ministers to us, and we can be very thankful for that. I love how the author of Hebrews just right from the get-go says Christ is superior. He's more superior than anything, and let's just start with the angels. The angels are are, are wonderful and amazing and great. In fact, even this morning, we're talking uh, from Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10 is, is a really interesting chapter in the book of Revelation. I should probably say about every chapter in Revelation, but there's this image in Revelation 10. I'll just read just, just a few verses here. Revelation 10 verse 1 says this. Then I saw another mighty angel, don't know who it was, but coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in, in his hand, and he, he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. That's how big that, that's, that's how big he was. And this angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. It's just an amazing image of this massively gigantic angel touching down on the earth with one foot in the ocean and the other foot on the land. A rainbow over his head, his face shining like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. That's just an angel? That's a single angel. Maybe a very mighty angel, but an angel nonetheless. And yet that angel is going to look like a tiny little ant compared to the Son of Man when He touches down on the earth at His second coming. That just kind of gives me the chills, right? Whoa! That's an amazing image, and yet it pales in comparison to the way that Christ is, to His superiority, and to the way that that, that Christ is going to touch down on the earth at His second coming. What an amazing image. What an amazing image. And it certainly proves Christ's superiority. And so, beloved, as we close for the evening, do you believe that Christ truly is supreme? Yeah. Do you? Thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for that. That was a resounding agreement. I love it. I love it. Yes, Nathaniel. Yes, Christ is supreme. He is superior. He is preeminent. The author has done an amazing job at proving that. The next chapter is a stark warning. It's a real and a warning passage. Warning against neglecting salvation. Warning against not repenting. Warning against not turning to and toward such a great salvation. And it's going to be a real uh, stark warning for us next time. A couple of questions to reflect on as we close for tonight. Before we do a brief time of prayer, a couple of questions that were I found extremely helpful from uh, Dr. Al Muller's commentary on Hebrews. A couple of questions, just just rhetorical questions. Be, Be thinking about these things, be meditating on them even during this week. But listen carefully. Number one, how does the fact that God speaks to us through his word fuel our complete confidence in scripture and serve our knowledge of God and our understanding of his character? How does the fact that God speaks to us through his word Serve our knowledge of God and our understanding of his character. What does it say about his relationship to us? Sneak peek. He wants a relationship with us. And the relationship that he wants is right here in front of us. His son, Jesus. His word. Jesus is the word. It's right here. And the the, the second thought or second second sort of uh, series of thoughts is this. What things in your life do you consider supreme? What things in your life do you consider supreme? Supreme. How does the reality of Christ's superiority over all things change the way you view those things? I don't know about you, but this, this chapter made all my problems, which I always think are a really big deal, seem very small. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. It made the, the trials that I think that I'm suffering, and I'm all alone in my suffering, and no one has ever, has ever suffered the way I'm suffering right now, made them seem very insignificant. It made my life... Seem like a vapor, which it is, rightfully so, and also gave me great hope. Though my life is a vapor, I, don't, I, don't have, a, I have nothing to worry about. The, the Lord could take me in ten seconds. I'm ready. I'm ready to live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's, let's go. And until then, we have a very distinct and a very clear mission to share the gospel with those who don't know him. So, what things in your life do you consider supreme? How does the reality of Christ's superiority over all things change the way you view those things? It makes them smaller, which is wonderful. And last but not least, how does Christ's supremacy affect the way we live our lives day in and day out? How does it affect it? How should it affect it? It should have an incredibly immense impact on the way we live. Just like I've been telling my students... That eschatology, the study of end times, should not just be a, a dry academic treatise. It should change the way we live. Revelation should change the way we live. The book of Hebrews, this, this first chapter in proving Christ's supremacy and his superiority over all things, even the angels, should give us incredible perspective and give us incredible hope and also give us our marching orders, shouldn't it, beloved? Indeed it should. Let's, let's pray, and we'll break up into some small groups and, and conclude our time tonight in, in some corporate prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. You are supreme. You are superior. We acknowledge that. We recognize it. It's clear from your word, and we can only respond in this way, in adoration and worship and awe. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love its clarity, and we love the way that you have uh, inspired it for us. We love you, Lord. Help us to be more like your son who truly is superior and supreme over all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.